Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another edition of Britflix Podcast. Today I've got with me writer, director, and special effects designer Paul Hyatt. Hi. Hi, Paul. How are you? Not bad, Stuart. Thanks for um, taking the time for this. It, it's great to do this. Well, we've uh, we've previously spoken to uh, one of the actors in the film we're going to talk about, or the the reason we're, we're chatting at the season house. We did a video interview with uh, Kevin Howarth. Um, and what drew drew me to talk to Paul this time is that I, I noticed that of of late through through the uh, the power of social media, you know, ongoing good news attached to season house as uh, various awards were being picked up. So uh, for those that maybe haven't seen season house, Paul, do you want to give an introduction as to what that film is? Yeah, season house is a film about. It's set in the Balkan, just after the Balkan conflicts, and it's about a young girl who is kidnapped from her village during a campaign of uh, violence, and she's kidnapped by a military after watching her family slaughtered, sold to a brothel keeper, played by Kevin Howarth, who you had uh, spoke to, and he takes her in, and because of her birthmark, he decides to use her as a slave to look after the other girls that are working in this brothel stroke rape house and she takes care of them uh, cleans them up afterwards prepare that prepares them and drugs them and she lives in the walls in her own little world and one day uh, one of the girls that is um, brought in to work in there she strikes a friendship with um, and she during the night she comes out the vent um, and you know th- their friendship blossoms and they have this right little world away from all the violence and rape that they're exposed to every day. But one day, the military that were responsible for the for Angel, who's the girl that was kidnapped in the beginning, it's her story, they um, come to the house, led by Sean Pertwee, and that's where it all kind of goes wrong and, you know, the whole new dynamic comes in and it turns into very much a revenge thriller. Indeed, indeed. Now... This is this is your that was your directorial debut, wasn't it, for a feature film? Yes. But but you've got like a, like a like I say in the introduction that you've you've got a list, list as long as your arm in terms of um, 
in terms of um, special effects and, and prosthetics and things like that on film. I mean, in fact, I was looking through your credits and I realised that um, The Lighthouse, which you worked on in 99, nice. that was the first film I wrote about as a journalist. Oh, really? <laughs> I, I interviewed, oh, how interesting. I, I interviewed Simon Hunter um, back then. <laughs> wow, that, that was one of my first big ones to do. Um, mm. I think that was the first film that I got where I had... A, de- a whole department because I think there was about four years before it was released mm. um, and I, I remember getting that film um, meeting Simon and the guys lovely guys we made that film and I, that was the first one where I was in charge of bodies prosthetics all the makeup effects and all that sort of stuff and it was it was great and then it didn't get released for a good few years but yeah you know but it, but it showed didn't it it showed at the first Fright Fest didn't it it got that was its um... yes it showed didn't it yeah absolutely which was kind of weird because I was doing the preview last year to Fright Fest and obviously when, when your season now was premiered and it was just interesting to see, you know, you, you were opening the show and it was interesting to look back over the time and there see you were involved with the film at the very first Fright Fest. How weird is that? Yeah. I've been up on the, the Fright Fest stage a few times with various movies so it was really nice to be actually up there with my own movie. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I mean, the thing is, for, for for those, I mean, people can check check out on IMDb for sure. But you know, films like The Descent, London to Brighton, The Cottage, Doomsday, Eden Lake, Mutant Chronicles with Simon again, I guess, Attack the Block, Woman in Black, Citadel. I interviewed Kieran a couple of weeks ago. Oh right, yeah. Regarding Citadel, um, so there's 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 a lot of films where people may have seen your work in addition to uh, the Season House. Um, so thinking about you becoming a director, was that an ambition at the start or is that a product of working in film? I I, I always loved film um, since I was, you know, uh, since I can remember being a little kid and watching films. And, you know, I think because at first, you know, being a 13, 14, 15-year-old kid, being really interested, I was very much, I, I loved sculpting and painting and I loved movies and horror movies. So that kind of... It, it, that that was a much more way in for me into prosthetics and creatures and makeup effects. But over the years, you know, and, and it's been like an 18, 19 year career now mm. that, you know, my love for film absolutely developed and you work with so many people and not just the horror movies, but, you know, TV period dramas, you know, films like Harry Brown and Hunger. You know, I, I worked on so many movies and I, I love cinema in general. I love all kinds of movies um, you know, I've always got very much a, a, a real passion for horror because that was something that you know sparked everything off. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I have a real good love for film, and over the years, you know, I just I, I love film, so it, it just got to a point. Maybe about five, six, seven years ago, I I started to get the sort of you know urge to want to make my own film, and and a lot of that came from working with first time directors and. You know, kind of getting frustrated that, you know, I'd look at stuff and think, well, why are you doing this? What, you know, why are you covering a scene like that? Or, you know, this is such an amazing script and they're not doing much with it. And I'd always be like reading the script and imagine how I would do it. And, you know, thinking, God, this is a great story, great characters. What about this? And then, so you know, so it just got to the point where I'm forever thinking and trying to visualize and scripts and work out what I do. And, you know, I, I love watching movies like Gone Baby Gone and Million Dollar Baby just as much as I love, 
watching Martyrs and Frontiers and The Descent. So it, it, it was a real love. And I, I think the last few years, I just thought, you know something, I really want to make my own movies. And, you know, I really just wanted to direct. With prosthetics, I've kind of, kind of done what, you know, it's, it's, I've, I've done it. You know, it's, mm. I, there's nothing more I really want to do. And, you know, the, the next stage I felt was, I want to write my own stuff, but also I want to take someone else's script. But the, the main thing I want to do is is direct and visualize from someone's script or my own script, or whatever. Just visualize and and make my own movies. Okay. Just before we go in further into the directing bit, just mm. just for the um, just to give a bit of education to our listener, uh, what's the difference between special effects makeup designer and prosthetics makeup designer? Where, where's the line between the two? um not much really um prosthetics tends to be just the sort of makeup that look like like old age makeups burn makeups freddy krueger makeups people tend to just say when it's prosthetics it's just prosthetic appliances applied to someone okay. with special makeup effects it's it, it, it includes that but also includes things like arms being blown off heads being splattered it, it sort of affects type stuff I tend to think that the, 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 the crossover is so much that I, I don't mind what I'm referred to because it, it pretty much covers everything. But sometimes I'll have, if I've just done an old age makeup, I might just go down as prosthetics designer. Okay. They, they might call me a special makeup effects designer. But usually, you know, something like um, a, a, a film that's got just loads and loads of violence of just people's limbs getting chopped off like a period drama... I might go down as special makeup effects designer. So it, it there really isn't to be honest with you much difference at all. Okay. So so how so going back to the director point then, how how did you um how did Seizing House as a project come about? And I I mean I'm interested to see that the story's credited to um Helen Solomon, but the the screenplay itself was a combination of yourself with uh, Colonel Palmer and Adrian Rigglesford. Um, does that mean was that was Season House a story born out of a adapted from a novel or something or no? Basically, where that came from is uh, I met Helen um, and she'd been doing a lot of research on the subject okay. uh, of, of, of human trafficking and sex slavery, and she was telling me about uh, telling me all about this research, and she was thinking about doing a project, you know, based along the lines of you know, human trafficking and sex slavery. And she gave me a kind of tagline of uh, a, a deaf mute girl lives in the walls of a, of a brothel. And I said, you know something? That's a really cool idea for a movie. And she said, yeah, we think about doing this project. And I said, look, you know, I, I think it's a really good film. And I think the version that she was thinking about was much more of a sort of drama and a sort of docudrama and something a little bit more... Um, sort of documentary style, and I and I said I think we could do something like an exciting thriller. Um, mm. And she said, okay, that, that sounds interesting. So I went away and kind of got my head around it um, and done a kind of outline. And then Connell Palmer came along, who, who's my my writing partner. I I I do a lot of my writing with him. And I said, okay. you know, we've got this idea. Helen's come up with this idea, but you know, it really is deaf mute girl stuck in the walls of a brothel let let's let's take that and you know she'd done a lot of research and she gave us a lot of research and told us a lot of stories about these girls and what's happened to them and 
you know, it was, it, it was truly terrifying stuff, but I really didn't want to make something that was too dark, depressing and documentary. Like I, I just thought, you know, it, it would just be not enough people to see it. And it wasn't what I wanted to do. Yeah. So me and Connell pretty much wrote the script in a couple of months and really worked out the structure and the characters and tried to make a movie that I, I, at that time, and even now I was a real big fan of films like Martyrs and Frontiers where they were very slow burning, intelligent, thought provoking, but absolutely brutally violent. And I, yeah. you know, for my directorial debut, I, I didn't want to do a creature movie. I didn't want to do a slasher film. I didn't want to do something that people would expect me because of my background, they would expect me, Oh, he's just going to do a, creature in the woods or you know four teenagers get killed by you know a a guy with a machete i wanted to do something that people wouldn't expect me that i could actually show i didn't want too many prosthetics in it i just wanted it to be a really interesting story with interesting characters that we could really play around with but also you know like the third act is pretty action orientated and those effects so i kind of wanted to show what i could do as a director um so me and connell wrote the script and yeah we we took it to helen and you know she liked it and yeah that's kind of how it went about okay and and, well from a writing point of view um a deaf mute character is uh is a blank canvas in one sense but also if they can't talk <laughs> it's a it's a tough character to write for. So, what were the challenges there? Make getting getting that character developed in this in the screenplay. Absolutely, you know, it's one of those things where because it was set in the Balkans, and you know, I kind of saw it as a dark fairy tale. I didn't want loads and loads of talking, and I felt if she spoke right at the beginning, it would be like, oh my god, we've got to get out of here straight away. And I kind of didn't want to have that feel to the film. And I thought, I, I I love films where they sort of, one person has an affliction or a condition that kind of helps to layer the character and gives a lot more. And I thought, you know something? To have a deaf-mute girl, you know, living in this environment, in this world of a brothel, you know, which is probably the most horrible, nihilistic world, but how she copes not being able to hear and having to live on edge, you know, in a hypervigilant type of way, you know, how she communicates. And also it kind of helped that I wanted her as almost like a kind of ghost in this, in this world. And if she speaks to everyone all the time, I kind of wanted a a disembodied feel that she was kind of like, you know, um, a separate entity to what's going on in that world, you know, rather than blokes talking to her, her talking to girls, explaining to girls what's happening. I didn't want any of that. I just wanted it to be a much more opiate, kind of dreamlike world. And I felt with having her as a, a deaf mute really helped that way. No, I mean, she, she, she's almost like a vehicle for each of the girls' despair because obviously she's the only person that listens to them, but she can't hear them. <laughs> so it's kind of, there's an, iron, there's an irony there, isn't there? Yeah, and she's shut off her feelings as well, so yeah. she can't hear them, and she's she's an emotional shell. You know, if mm. she she let herself talk and communicate and feel for those girls, she wouldn't be able to survive. And that's the whole point that she was a survivor in that world, and and, and a way for her to survive was not being able to hear anything, and also to be able to you know turn off her emotional sort of feelings for these girls. One of the things that I talked to Kevin about when we when we discussed the Victor character. Was um, was obviously that the, there's a there's a I won't spoil it, but there's a fairly um, a fairly brutal introduction to Victor at the start of the film, and mm. um, and it's clear at that point that in the within the brothel he's he's the alpha male, 
And like, yes. you, like you said in the introduction, until the arrival of Sean Pertwee's character, Goran, where we get to see the kind of an escalation in what an alpha male is to the point that almost like Victor is is kind of neutralised in terms of his yeah. power. Um, so what was what what was going through your mind there about that? Because obviously, clearly, there one. I think I think Vic, I get the impression that Victor kind of wants out of all this, whatever they've done to get to the end of the Balkan War, and Goron mm. hasn't finished yet, has he? <laughs> no, I mean my, my feeling was Victor, and I spoke to Kevin Harrison a lot about this. I said. Victor wasn't born evil. You know, he's not an inherently evil person. He's been turned into what he is by his environment, by the war. And in a way, he is kind of a victim. However, he's an opportunist. He's manipulative. He doesn't... And I said it's really important that, you know, you don't come across as someone that enjoys killing these girls because I don't think he does. It's something that he has to do to prove a point. It's it's a means to an end. He, if the war hadn't happened, he would be a used car salesman. You know, it's one of those <laughs> things where, you know, I, I didn't want any black or white baddies in like one dimensional baddies in this. You yeah. know, there's so many gray areas. And, you know, him killing a girl at the start, he didn't do it because he enjoyed it. You know, at the end of the day, it's his stock. He, he did it to make sure all the other girls behave and do what he does. Once that you know, what he wants, you know, they will just do whatever he wants, just purely out of fear. And, mm. you know, I kind of wanted to set him up as uh, what you may think might be a one-dimensional baddie comes in, cuts his girl's throat. And then during the rest of the film, you, you, you tend to understand him more. And, you know, I've had a lot of people go, yeah, you know, I hate the fact that I actually start to get to like him. And that's what I want to do. I want to show everyone can be turned into what they are by war, you know, a, a guy who's, you know, been in the army, this war happens, all these atrocities, they're desensitized and they find a way to survive. And what he, what he found was the way that he would survive is by selling these girls as commodities for him to get out. Like obviously what he's doing is absolutely horrible and abominant and repulsive and, you know, but it was just something that he didn't want to do, but he got forced into that life. And, you know, he could have got killed or he could have sold drugs or guns. He, he found a way to survive and make money. He probably hates doing it, but he has to do it. Yeah, I think, I think it's that, I mean, neither, I, don't, I mean, I've not, I don't know if you have, but I've, I've never fought in a war. So I, I, I can't imagine, certainly in, in the auspices of, of what would been, what was the real territorial war with neighbours, what the idea of normal becomes, you know, and that's what I think, would twist people, isn't it? And that's the kind of thing, I guess, what you're saying about Victor is that twisted by circumstances, not by sociopathy. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And that's the one thing I said, you know, he's not a sociopath, he's not a psychopath or anything like that. He knows the difference between right and wrong. It's just that he's got to that point where, well, he has to do that to survive. And the war, God knows what he's gone through on the war and what he's seen and what he's experienced, but that's what turned into it. Now, Gorman, on the other hand, he is a crusader, you know, but again, you know, th this is a guy, and I said to Sean, I reckon that you, you probably leave your wife and kids in the morning going these ethnic violence campaigns. And, you know, that's a re that's another interesting person where, you know, he he's so full of, 
you, you get so conditioned with this hatred. You know, two countries can absolutely hate each other. Two religious, um, two religions can hate each other. You know, two cultures. It's just amazing that how someone can hate someone so much that they, you know, that they're, they're born into this conflict. They're educated into hating these other people purely for who they are rather than what they've done. And then they can go on these ethnic cleansing campaigns that they can they can run over people with tanks and, you know, take these girls out and rape and murder them. But then they will go home and have dinner with their wives. But they're, they're so clouded with this judgment of hatred. And, you know, it's it's again, if he'd been born somewhere else, he, he wouldn't be the person he is. So that's the whole thing about, you know, these characters, that they weren't born evil. They've more been turned evil by the war and what they've gone through. Yeah, yeah. Um, thinking of, thinking of um, the, life, the life of a feature film, um, like, like I say, I interviewed Kevin back in the summer, and I'm speaking to you now about the film because of things that are going on at film festivals. It'd be interesting to talk about the sort of life of, Life of Season House as mm. it's going to different festivals where it's getting noted and award. I mean, maybe men- mentions. I mean, there was the Portuguese festival, wasn't there? Yeah, they they really liked it. We 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 got a critics award at Fantas Porto, and mm. then um, we recently done the Bragasin Festival, and we got the best film, best director, and best actress. So mm. it's really interesting with the festivals. You go along, and you know, people really seem to connect with a film it, it you know and the one thing is it's a film that some people love and some people hate there's not much in between mm. um but the festival circuit has been really kind to us we picked up loads of awards and rosie's done really great in getting i think she's got three best actress awards okay. and it's really interesting to talk to the people afterwards and see the people that liked it the people that didn't like it the people that came out shell-shocked most of the people that did like it came out, they felt quite angry. They're like, oh, God, I can't believe there's people like this. And the people that loved it were like, you know, I'm really glad that you've made a film that wasn't gratuitous and exploitive, that you've made a film that shows what it's like, but, you know, it's not too dark and depressing. And it's it's a film about a really touchy subject. And some people will not like the film because of the subject. And people, some people will love the film because of subject and and what we've tried to do, but do you, do you yeah. think that's because do you think that's because there's no there's no absolute morality in the film, is there? You don't we don't end the film with kind of finger wagged at us to tell us the difference between right and wrong. It's it's for us to decide yeah. ourselves, isn't it? Absolutely, and I think some people, you know, there's there's one festival director that had shown it, and he said, I, I watched your film, and I I was so angry for three days, I felt I'm not going to show it, and then. <laughs> the female organiser said to him, no, you've got to show it. And he watched it again and he realised why he had to show it. And he goes, I realised what an important film it is. And, you know, but some people, you know, some people hate it because, you know, they're taken on this journey for an hour and a half and it's a dark, nihilistic journey. Um, there's glimmers of hope. But, you know, I didn't want to make a film that was a documentary. I didn't want to make a film pointing fingers at one particular area. I didn't want to... It, it wasn't a judgment on people. It's something to, for people to watch and go through this world and just have people think about the world that these girls are in. And, you know, I think some people don't like it because, you know, some people feel I've taken a subject matter and I've turned it into a, a thriller, you know, which mm. is a very raw and real subject. But I just think, well, if you don't tell stories, then, you know, a lot of people said to me, does this really happen? Are those places really like that? They had no idea. And they would never have had any idea that these places exist in that world 
if they hadn't seen my movie because a lot of people aren't going to read these articles in the Guardian and Times and they're not going to read, you know, because, you know, the, these things are depressing news articles. But they might watch a, a revenge thriller and see see a part of what happens. So I really wasn't like a, a pushy documentarial style. I just wanted to make a movie set in that world of interesting characters and people could see a slice of life in that world. I mean, well, well that, you know, not 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 to the same degree, but it's, it's a similar thing. You know, the, the Nazis had the Joy Division, didn't they? I mean, that was all. Yeah. That was all about servicing the the Third Reich, as it were, for any, for anything anything less anything more than just sex, wasn't it? Absolutely. And you know, th- this happens. You know, we, we said it in the Balkans, but this happens everywhere. You know, wherever there's a war, wherever there's a civil war, any kind of unrest, then. The girls are the ones that suffer, you know, people kill, girls are displaced, girls are rounded up, and they're sold as a commodity, guns, drugs, and girls trafficked, and it, it, it's heart-mending. It's, it's really, you know, we've done a lot of research, and it was really, you know, personally, I was really, really shocked and really upset by what happens to these girls that, you know, you know, between the ages, you know, 12 and 19, they're rounded up and sold purely as me and you know but what was amazing at these places a couple of people said oh god you know how can these places exist you know no guy's gonna go and have sex with a girl there and it's like yes what we showed in the film these places exist you know because a lot of it isn't about guys going for a little bit of sex you know these these are guys that you know are full of hatred and these girls are just commodities and it was to show what a horrible part of the world you know that these places exist in now you've got other projects now in the uh, in the pipeline, Paul. Mm. And uh, I was wondering if you wanted to tell us. Yeah, what I was just going to say those. I probably made Season House to sound a lot more dark and depressing than it is, but just want to say you know, like you know, you obviously seen it. It's it's I've tried to make it you know as an exciting revenge thriller. You know, I I I really didn't want it to come across as me trying to go on about human trafficking and sex slaving that that's just the context of you know the world that they live in I, I just wanted to make something that was really interesting and original with really interesting characters but be exciting and a bit of a roller coaster ride as well you know yeah, yeah. i mean I would, I would say it's not a traditional horror film but clearly yeah. it has horrifying sequences but at the center of it is someone that is trying to get away and that becomes the kind of thriller doesn't it that and that that you the know possibility the possibility of escape. Absolutely. And and the one thing that's really interesting is that the horror fans have really come to love it. And, you know, obviously I follow it and you know, it was said that I didn't make it as a horror movie, but it has horrific elements in. Hmm. But I think because of the world, it the world that they're in, it kind of feels very sort of horror film like and how I shot it you know, very dreamlike and dark fairy tale like. It's you know, it, it was a real lovely thing that a lot of the horror community have really liked it, and it, it seems to be you know, because I, I wasn't making a film about you know human trafficking and such. I wanted just to make a really interesting thriller based in that world. Mm. I didn't want to make any kind of statement. No, no, no. Like I say, it's it's the 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 the, uh, the decision on. Your thoughts you take away from it is left with you, isn't it? I mean, like I said, mm. as, as an audience member, you're you're not like you said you didn't you haven't took a side because it's it, you don't have to. You know, evil evil's yeah. easy to spot if you've got a good heart. <laughs> to be yes. honest with you, um, so so do you want to tell us a bit about your um, about the the projects you've got in the pipeline now? 
as as a director? Yes, uh, there's a couple of projects I have that um, I can talk about. Which one is How, yeah. which is um, a really cool script. It's a it's it's basically about a group of passengers on a late night train. Uh, the train breaks down in the middle of nowhere, and they're attacked by a creature. And it's and they basically got a band together to to survive until morning. Yeah. Now basically, the, the premise is quite traditional, but we're shooting it in a really cool, new and exciting way. I'm um, not sure if I can say exactly what the creature is, and it's 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 just been announced. We've been working on the script for a while, but it's it's a really cool uh, script. It, the script was brought to me, and we've been working on it. But it's just a really really good horror movie really unashamed about what it is it's a real crowd pleaser it's it's good exciting fun horror all things be all things going well then when when, when do you see you being able to shoot this or is it are we not at that stage yet uh, we're not at the stage but we just kind of uh, look at the options but it will be uh sort of this year okay cool that's exciting stuff and, what, and what's the other project you can talk about yeah, the other one is a film called Heretics, which is a, a period horror set in 17th century England. Okay. Um, and I'm not sure how much I can say about that just because, you know, I can only give details of what's yeah. already been announced. But it's very much, uh, it's a very cool gothic horror. Um, again, it's one of those things where me and Connor have done a lot of work on this script to really develop it into something that, hasn't really quite been done before. Um, it, it's just a very interesting kind of premise. I, I can't say too much about it, but okay. um, well, well, maybe 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 we can just talk in more general terms then about 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 take take the writing part of the film. And you say you've got your your writing partner Connell. Um, hmm. What what's your um, What's your approach to to scripts? Are you are you a kind of set off and go? Are you an outliner? Are you a, up in the morning person you you know burn the midnight oh how what what's your kind of what's your approach to pulling the script together well to be honest with you i mean the, the, obviously the, the scripts that me and Connor have written from scratch there's mm. there's scripts that have come to me that i've had to do a rewrite on and there's scripts that have come to me that i've had to do a complete one page rewrite mm. um but basically there's a bunch of stuff that me and Connor we, we tend to mostly write everything together sometimes if, if a script comes to me we do a, a polish on it sometimes just I will do work on it but basically we, we just keep kicking around ideas um, both me and Connor we're we're very different in our likes and dislikes we, we, we do cross over but it's one of those things where there's films that I love that he hates hmm. And films that he loves that I hate. So, so we've got very, we're very different. So Are you when, literally when, in the we, same room, though, Paul. Is that when you oh, say yeah, when you write together? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we will both sit there together. Who does and, the typing? Yeah, we will sit there, kind of arguing, <laughs> and um, you know, he will say to me, "Oh, Paul, that that's that that's so you." And I'd be like, "Yeah, but you know what you've done? That's a little bit." Uh, and, and and we'd always have these kind of, but but we always kind of get them and and. You know, I, I've, it's such a rewarding thing writing with Connell just because we're, we're two very different brains. And I think sometimes when two writers are very samey, it doesn't really work because you don't really get mm. anywhere. Where me and Connell, we, 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 we kind of work very well together. And, you know, we, we sit in our office just, just working away and throwing ideas, pacing, you know, spending hours and hours trying to work out a little detail and then... You know, we could spend hours just 
arguing over one little detail and then we realize it's not worth talking about and then we come back to it and work it out in five minutes the next day and you know it is literally just me and him just kind of talking through ideas and just trying to throw out anything that is cheesy or just done before and just you know really yeah we just sit there for eight hours a day sometimes just you know going through stuff and throwing stuff out and you know working treatments or you know working on things before me and Connell were writing together I had a few scripts that I've now pulled out um there's one that we've been working on which is the second part of my horror war trilogy mm. um with season house is like part one of my war horror trilogy which is kind of horror films set in war zones um or conflicts. Now, basically, I thought, you know, I want to do three films that are very different, different characters, different war zones, different conflicts, different times, different periods, um, but do three very real interesting stories based in those worlds. And me and Connell, um, so we did Season House, and the next one is The Black Site, which we're working about, which is set in Iraq and England, which okay. is very much a psychological war thriller, um, very much like sort of Jacob's Ladder, that type of film, um, and we've just kind of finished that. That was a script that I was originally going to do before Season House with okay. my uh, with my producer Michael Riley, um, but we were circling around a two million budget. We thought that's going to be way too much for me to do as my first film, so we um, thought let's do Season House, which was a lower budget. And now we're coming back to Black Sight, and that's in, in in the background, just trying to develop that as well. Um, you know. Like we're, we're at that uh, with Black Sight, we're only at the point of you know rewriting because that's a script now. Cause all the kind of rewritten that, so that'd be something to look for for another time. But um, yeah, that's kind of how we. Well, work. Sounds, sounds like exciting times. Sounds like exciting times, Paul. Um, yeah. Ju- just to end on, then uh, I got a couple of questions that I like to ask everybody. Um, mm. One, I mean, it seemed it, it, it might be a bit. I mean, given given the hot your hot your love of horror, I think I'll stick to that. So, if you um, if you could recommend a British horror film that you think is underrated and deserves a bit more kudos, to be honest with you, that the, the, the two horrors that have really impressed me over the last few years was it's not English though, is is Maniac. Um, did you see the remake? I just watched it actually um, this week. I, I thought it was phenomenal. I I I, I watched it at Fright Fest going in not really expecting much i thought it was absolutely brilliant did you like it i loved it i mean it's it's the first film i've seen for a long time where i've actually listened to the soundtrack a lot before i watched the film um mm. it's by a french artist called rob who okay who who uh, he's like a protege of you remember the band air yeah yeah so he's a protege of theirs and bizarrely when the 911 planes Hit. Oh wow! I was meant to see him at the '93 for East play, and he's just an artist that's, and obviously I never did. Um, yeah. So it's an artist that stuck with me. And then when I saw he'd done the soundtrack for Maniac, I um, I've been listening to it incessantly. He's he's very similar to um, Cliff Martinez, you know, did uh, yeah. Drive and Contagion. So it's that wow. it's that kind of sound. It's really beautiful. I think it was great. You know, it's one of those things where I just thought it was one of those films that just. Could have been done really badly or just, you know, cheap remake, but it wasn't. It, it was just something that you really felt like you were in the head of Elijah Wood's, you know, character, that he really wanted a normal life, that he just could not could not let himself, you know, he was battling his demons. And it was just, I, I, I just thought it really, 
it hit me. You know, I came out of that film just thinking, my God, that was a real brutal, amazing journey into that guy's head. I I, I, I was blown away by it, to be honest with you. I mean, stylistically um, as well, you've got that beautiful element of never actually seeing his face for real. You only ever see him in reflection. I thought that was an amazing... Um, way of shooting that film all in yeah. POV and I think the last time I remember that being done was Diving Bell and the Butterfly which was an amazing movie and then to do this but you know in Elijah Wood's demented character I thought it was great it, it was just so exciting and you know really knocked the wind out of me just you know emotionally as well as you know forget the gore was amazing but just being in that brain of his you really felt that you were there and going through what he's going through. And I, I just thought it was great. I mean, I'm a big fan of, you know, like French horror, you know, Frontiers, um, the Martyrs inside, you know, I really like the, the, the sort of Euro horror and, yeah. what, you know, the, I'm big, big fans of those. And then when I watched Maniac, it was like, wow, that was just really good. But I mean, it is a French U- US co-production, isn't it? Yes. And there you go. You know, it's one of those things where it's just, Nice, but sometimes remakes, you know, I, I really enjoy remakes anyway. Remakes, some people are like, oh, you shouldn't remake this, shouldn't remake that. And I was like, well, I, I say, why not make a remake? Because you've got the choice whether to watch it or not. The, the, the original one would always be there. You can always mm. watch the original one. You know, a reboot and a remake, you know, they're either going to get it right or they're going to get it wrong. Well, you've uh, segued they- beautifully into my final question, Paul. Mm. If, if you could reboot or remake any film... And you could be at the, the the direct in the director's chair for it. What would what would that be? Oh God! Um, I mean, funnily enough, the one I would love to have done would have been Carrie, um, okay. which unfortunately has been taken because um, that is one of my the, the book is amazing. Um, uh, you know, so I'm really looking forward to that one. But um, wanting to remake something now, um, I would love to have done the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Um, I'm just trying to think what else, what else I'd like to would like to do really. Um, I'm not sure. A lot of the ones that I want to do, like the thing, have already been done. Mm. Um, oh, Suspiria! I'd love to do Suspiria. Wow. You it's know, a, it's, it's a bold one. It was one of my favorite movies growing up. It was just the, the style, the feel. The environment, you know, I, I just think, you know, uh, yeah, Suspiria, I thought was a really cool movie, and I, I, I think it's, it's well worth a remake. I think oh. they were trying to get it up and going. So, <laughs> there's the, I mean, it's it, it's, it's the thing about classic horror, isn't it? I mean, there's, I don't know what I mean. Stylistically, that one set set a, a few boundaries, didn't it, in terms of in terms of Italian horror for sure. The style, the colours, the the music, that it was a real sort of I remember watching it as a kid, you know, just going, Oh my god, it was like an assault on the senses. Mm. And, you know, you know, turning up the music on that on a big TV. I watched it a few months ago, um, you know, on a big TV with a music and it really is such a experience watching that movie that, you know, just the colours and the style and the killing and the you know, it's a real ferocity to it. And It'd be nice to do a kind of remake of that. Well, there's there's one for you and uh, you and Connell to uh, to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, sir. Thank you very much for your time. DVD of Season House is out now, isn't it? Yeah, DVD. You get it on DVD and Blu-ray, and it's on Sky Box Office. Um, 
Filmflex, um, iTunes. So, you know, it's easy to get. So people can fill the boots on Season House many ways. Yep. Please, okay, please well, go and buy it. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, good luck with the, the projects you've got in the pipeline and the work you're up to. And, uh, and maybe, um, you know, sometime next year we can catch up on how some of the other projects are going, if you like. That'd be great, Stuart. Look forward to it. All right. Well, thanks for coming on BritFlix.com and uh, speak to you soon. It's the BritFlix.com podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. You did something for the fun.